Good morning. This is Maggie Jones and Natural Wonders. I'll be reading again John Muir's tales of exploring in Alaska in August 1879, when he was 41, from his book Travels in Alaska, Chapter 8, about the Stickeen Glaciers. Then we'll jump back in time to when Muir was 26 and exploring the Great Lakes region's plants. He spent two years living in Ontario in 1864 and 65. His first published writing was in the form of a letter he wrote to his professor about his delight in discovering the rare orchid Calypso borealis. It was published in a Boston newspaper. This part of the reading is from the book, The Life and Letters of John Muir. It is entirely available online or in book form. Definitely look at sierraclub.org. They have an endless wealth of John Muir writings. And now, Travels in Alaska. Chapter 8. The weather that morning, August 27th, was dark and rainy, and I tried to persuade myself that I ought to rest a day before setting out on new ice work. But just across the river, the big glacier was staring me in the face, pouring its majestic flood through a broad mountain gateway and expanding in the spacious river valley to a width of four or five miles, while dim in the great distance loomed its high mountain fountains. So grand an invitation displayed in characters so telling was, of course, irresistible and body care and weather care vanished. Mr. Choquette, the keeper of the station, ferried me across the river, and I spent the day in getting general views and planning the work that had been long in mind. I first traced the broad, complicated terminal moraine to its southern extremity, climbed up the west side along the lateral moraine three or four miles, making my way now on the glacier now on the moraine-covered bank, and now compelled to climb up through the timber and brush in order to pass some rocky headland until I reached a point commanding a good general view of the lower end of the glacier. Heavy, blotting rain then began to fall, and I retraced my steps, oftentimes stopping to admire the blue ice caves into which glad, rejoicing streams from the mountainside were hurrying as if going home, while the glacier seemed to open wide its crystal gateways to welcome them. The following morning, blotting rain was still falling, but time and work was too precious to mind it. Kind Mr. Choquette put me across the river in a canoe, with a lot of biscuits his wife had baked for me, and some dried salmon, a little sugar, and tea, a blanket, and a piece of light sheeting for shelter from rain during the night, all rolled into one bundle. When shall I expect you back? inquired Choquette, when I bade him goodbye. Oh, any time, I replied. I shall see as much as possible of the glacier, and I know not how long it will hold me. Well, but when will I come to look for you if anything happens? Where are you going to try to go? Years ago, Russian officers from Sitka went up the glacier from here and none ever returned. It's a mighty dangerous glacier. 
all full of damn deep holes and cracks. You've got no idea what ticklish, deceiving traps are scattered over it. Yes, I have, I said. I have seen glaciers before, though none so big as this one. Do not look for me until I make my appearance on the river bank. Never mind me. I'm used to caring for myself. And so, shouldering my bundle, I trudged off through the moraine, boulders, and thickets. My general plan was to trace the terminal moraine to its extreme north end, pitch my little tent, leave the blanket and most of the hardtack, and from this main camp, go and come as hunger required or allowed. After examining a cross-section of the broad moraine, roughened by concentric masses, marking interruptions in the recession of the glacier of perhaps several centuries in which the successive moraines were formed and shoved together in closer or wider order, I traced the moraine to its northeastern extremity and ascended the glacier for several miles along the left margin, then crossed it at the Grand Cataract and down the right side to the river and along the moraine to the point of beginning. On the older portions of this moraine I discovered several kettles in process of formation and was pleased to find that they conformed in the most striking way with the theory I had already been led to make from observations on the old kettles which formed so curious a feature of the drift covering Wisconsin and Minnesota and some of the larger moraines of the residual glaciers in the California Sierra. I found a pit eight or ten feet deep with raw, shifting sides countersunk abruptly in the rough moraine material, and at the bottom, on sliding down by the aid of a lithe spruce tree that was being undermined, I discovered, after digging down a foot or two, that the bottom was resting on a block of solid blue ice which had been buried in the moraine perhaps a century or more judging by the age of the tree that had grown above it. Probably more than a quarter century will be required to complete the formation of this kettle by the slow melting of the buried ice block. The moraine material, of course, was falling in as the ice melted, and the sides maintained an angle as steep as the material would lie. All sorts of theories have been advanced for the formation of these kettles, so abundant in the drift over a great part of the United States, and I was glad to be able to set the question at rest, at least as far as I was concerned. The glacier and the mountains about it are on so grand a scale, and so generally inaccessible in the ordinary sense, it seemed to matter but little what course I pursued. Everything was in full interest, even the weather though about as unfavorable as possible for wide views, and scrambling through the moraine jungle brush kept one as wet as if all the way was beneath a cascade. I pushed on with many a rest and halt to admire the bold and marvelously sculptured ice front, looking all the grander and more striking in the gray mist with all the rest of the glacier shut out until I came to a lake about 200 yards wide and two miles long, with scores of small bergs floating in it, some aground close and shore against the moraine, the light playing on their angles and shimmering in their blue caves in ravishing tones, 
This proved to be the largest of the series of narrow lakelets that lie in shallow troughs between the moraine and the glacier, a miniature Arctic ocean, its ice cliffs played upon by whispering, rippling wavelets, and its small berg flows drifting in its currents, or with the wind, or stranded here and there along its rocky moraine shore. Hundreds of small rills and good-sized streams were falling into the lake from the glacier, singing in low tones, some of them pouring in sheer falls over blue cliffs from narrow ice valleys, some sprouting from pipe-like channels in the solid front of the glacier, others gurgling out of arched openings at the base. All these water streams were riding on the parent ice stream, their voices joined in one grand anthem, telling the wonders of their near and far-off fountains. The lake itself is resting in a basin of ice, and the forested moraine, though seemingly cut off from the glacier, and probably more than a century old, is in great part resting on buried ice left behind as the glacier receded and melting slowly on account of the protection afforded by the moraine detritus, which keeps shifting and falling on the inner face long after it is overgrown with lichens, mosses, grasses, bushes, and even good-sized trees. These changes going on with marvelous deliberation until in fullness of time the whole moraine settles down upon its bedrock foundation. The outlet of the lake is a large stream, almost a river in size, one of the main draining streams of the glacier. I attempted to ford it where it begins to break in rapids in passing over the moraine, but found it too deep and rough on the bottom. I then tried to ford at its head, where it is wider and glides smoothly out of the lake, bracing myself against the current with a pole, but found it too deep, and when the icy water reached my shoulders, I cautiously struggled back to the moraine. I next followed it down through the rocky jungle to a place wherein, breaking across the moraine dam, it was only about 35 feet wide. Here I found a spruce tree, which I felled for a bridge, it reached across, about ten feet of the top holding in the bank brush, but the force of the torrent, acting on the submerged branches and the slender end of the trunk, bent it like a bow and made it very unsteady, and after testing it, by going out about a third of the way over, it seemed likely to be carried away when bent deeper into the current by my weight. Fortunately, I discovered another, larger tree well situated a little farther down, which I felled, and though a few feet in the middle was submerged, it seemed perfectly safe. As it was now getting late, I started back to the lakeside where I had left my bundle, and in trying to hold a direct course, found the interlaced jungle still more difficult than it was along the bank of the torrent. For over an hour, I had to creep and struggle close to the rocky ground like a fly in a spider web without being able to obtain a single glimpse of any guiding feature of the landscape. Finding a little willow taller than the surrounding alders, I climbed it, caught sight of the glacier front, took a compass bearing, and sunk again into the dripping, blinding maze of brush, and at length emerged on the lake shore seven hours after leaving it, 
all this time as wet as though I had been swimming, thus completing a trying day's work. But everything was deliciously fresh, and I found new and old plant friends and lessons on nature's Alaska moraine landscape gardening that made everything bright and light. It was now near dark, and I made haste to make up my flimsy little tent. The ground was desperately rocky. I made out, however, to level down a strip large enough to lie on, and by means of slim alder stems bent over it and tied together, soon had a home. While thus busily engaged, I was startled by a thundering roar across the lake. Running to the top of the moraine, I discovered that the tremendous noise was only the outcry of a newborn berg, about fifty or sixty feet in diameter, rocking and wallowing in the waves it had raised, as if enjoying its freedom after its long grinding work as part of the glacier. After this fine last lesson, I managed to make a small fire out of wet twigs, got a cup of tea, stripped off my dripping clothing, wrapped myself in a blanket, and lay brooding on the gains of the day and plans for the morrow, glad, rich, and almost comfortable. It was raining hard when I awoke, but I made up my mind to disregard the weather, put on my dripping clothing, glad to know it was fresh and clean ate biscuits and a piece of dried salmon without attempting to make a tea fire, filled a bag with hardtack, slung it over my shoulder, and with my indispensable ice axe plunged once more into the dripping jungle. I found my bridge, holding bravely in place against the swollen torrent, crossed it, and beat my way around pools and logs, and through two hours of tangle back to the moraine on the north side of the outlet, a wet, weary battle, but not without enjoyment. The smell of the washed ground and vegetation made every breath a pleasure, and I found Calypso borealis, the first I had seen on this side of the continent, one of my darlings, worth any amount of hardship. And I'm going to stop reading this part of Muir, and we're going to go back in time to 1864, when Muir was 26, we're in Ontario, Canada, and Muir is traveling through the Great Lakes, mainly in Ontario, searching for plants. This is from The Life and Letters of John Muir at the website sierraclub.org in their History and Archives section. Introduction. In 1864, John Muir was wandering through the swamps of Canada, looking for flowers and trees, botanizing, and working at various odd jobs. During this time, Muir long sought a rare orchid, the Calypso borealis. The story of his discovery of Calypso was his first published writing, having been sent on to a newspaper by his former college professor, J.D. Butler, to whom he had written of the discovery in a letter. Years later, Muir expanded on the story in the autobiographical fragment below. This version is that contained in the Life and Letters of John Muir, edited by William Frederick Baudet and published in 1924 after Muir's death. And now Muir. After earning a few dollars working on my brother-in-law's farm near Portage, 
I set off on the first of my long, lonely excursions, botanizing in glorious freedom around the Great Lakes and wandering through innumerable tamarack and arborvita swamps and forests of maple, basswood, ash, elm, balsam, fir, pine, spruce, hemlock, rejoicing in their bound wealth and strength and beauty, climbing the trees, reveling in their flowers and fruits like bees in beds of goldenrods, glorying in the fresh, cool beauty and charm of the bog and meadow heathworts, grasses, carices, ferns, mosses, liverworts, displayed in boundless profusion. The rarest and most beautiful of the flowering plants I discovered on this first grand excursion was Calypso borealis. I had been fording streams more and more difficult to cross and wading bogs and swamps that seemed more and more extensive and more difficult to force one's way through. Entering one of these great tamarack and arborvita swamps one morning, holding a general, though very crooked course by compass, struggling through tangled, drooping branches and over and under broad heaps of fallen trees, I began to fear that I would not be able to reach dry ground before dark and therefore would have to pass the night in the swamp and began, faint and hungry, to plan a nest of branches on one of the largest trees or windfalls like a monkey's nest or eagles or Indians in the flooded forests of the Orinoco described by Humboldt. But when the sun was getting low and everything seemed most bewildering and discouraging, I found beautiful calypso on the mossy bank of a stream growing not in the ground but on a bed of yellow mosses in which its small white bulb had found a soft nest and from which its one leaf and one flower sprung. The flower was white and made the impression of the utmost simple purity like a snow flower. No other bloom was near it for the bog a short distance below the surface was still frozen and the water was ice cold. It seemed the most spiritual of all the flower people I had ever met. I sat down beside it and fairly cried for joy. It seemed so wonderful that so frail and lovely a plant has such power over human hearts. This Calypso meeting happened some 45 years ago, and it was more memorable and impressive than any of my meetings with human beings, excepting perhaps Emerson and one or two others. When I was leaving the university, Professor J.D. Butler said, John, I would like to know what becomes of you, and I wish you would write me, say once a year, so I may keep you in sight. I wrote to the professor telling him about this meeting with Calypso, and he sent the letter to an Eastern newspaper with some comments of his own. These, as far as I know, were the first of my words that appeared in print. How long I sat beside Calypso, I don't know. Hunger and weariness vanished, and only after the sun was low in the west, I splashed on through the swamp, strong and exhilarated as if never more to feel any mortal care. At length I saw maple woods on a hill and found a log house. I was gladly received. Where ha ye come from? The swamp? That awful swamp? What are ye doing there? And so on. 
Money of pure body has been lost in that muckle, cold, dreary blog and never been found. When I told her I had entered it in search of plants and had been in it all day, she wondered how plants could draw me to these awful places and said, It's God's mercy ye ever got out. Oftentimes I had to sleep without blankets and sometimes without supper, but usually I had no great difficulty in finding a loaf of bread here and there at the houses of the farmer settlers in the widely scattered clearings. With one of these large backwoods loaves, I was able to wander many a long, wild, fertile mile in the forests and bogs, free as the winds, gathering plants and glorying in God's abounding, inexhaustible, spiritual beauty bread. Storms, thunderclouds, winds in the woods were welcomed as friends. And that's the end of the Calypso story. I urge you to look up an image of Calypso Bulbosa, B-U-L-B-O-S-A. It's a beautiful, beautiful native orchid. There is also a book about John Muir's two years in Canada. It explores Muir's two formative years as a young man living at Trout Hollow, Mayford, Ontario, Canada, titled My Summer of Glorious Freedom. John Muir saunters around southern Ontario in the summer of 1864. The book by Robert Bircher traces Muir's botanical discoveries, which culminated in his discovery of the rare Calypso borealis orchid, leading to his very first written publication. And there's also a Canadian website about John Muir that's produced by the Canadian Friends of John Muir. And that's simply johnmuir.org. It's hard for me to stop following all these leads and links when reading these most excellent writings. And I've been actually editing and cutting back on topics that I wanted to recommend pursuing. I hope you enjoy this as much as I do. Next week, I'll be reading the well-known story that John Muir wrote about hiking one of the glaciers in Alaska with a wonderful small dog. Be sure to tune in for that. And if you don't manage to catch it, look at the archives of Natural Wonders on WDRT.org under podcasts. This is Maggie Jones and Natural Wonders. Thank you so much for listening.